This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the last episode of the year. I'm so grateful for each and every one of you who have listened to this podcast in 2017. Without you, I'd just be talking to myself. So thank you. Throughout this episode, you will also hear holiday greetings from some of my pod friends. And since the next episode of Once Upon a Crime won't be released until the new year, January 8th to be exact, I hope you'll check out some of their shows if you're not already listening. I know you'll find some great true crime podcasts to add to your subscription list. This week, I have a very special treat for you. I'll be covering the case of the disappearance and murder of Lacey Peterson. Lacey Peterson, a woman from Modesto, California, who was eight months pregnant, went missing on Christmas Eve of 2002 and was found murdered four months later. I'm not giving anything away, I don't think, because this case was a great media sensation and has been well covered in documentaries, podcasts, and in the media in general. But even if you think you know this story, I think you'll hear some new details about this case that you might not have known. At least that has been my goal while doing a deep dive into the research into this case. I'll be covering this case from a different angle and in a different format. I'll give you an overall summary of the case, but it will also be as a response to the recent A&E series, The Murder of Lacey Peterson. In that series, they worked to lay out a case to cast doubt on the guilt of the person who was ultimately charged with Lacey's murder, her husband Scott. And I'll be doing this in a discussion format for the very first time in the history of the show. My co-host will be none other than my very own sister, Yolanda Norris, who is also a podcaster. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. This is Chapter 3 of The Twelve Crimes of Christmas, The Murder of Lacey Peterson. So first of all, I want to welcome my co-host, Yolanda Norris, to the podcast. Yolanda, tell our listeners a bit about who you are and about your podcast. Well, my name is Yolanda, like you said, and I am your baby sister. (laughs) (laughs) But beyond that, I'm also a podcaster. Um, I'm half of the Not Perfect or Functional podcast. My husband, Mark, and I discuss uh, true crime, sports, pop culture, or a mix of all three with just a touch of sarcasm. Okay, so that's the Not Perfect or Functional podcast. That's what the podcast name is, not just what it is. (laughs) Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. The Just name to clarify, of the podcast is not perfect or functional. Okay. All right. Cool. Okay. So I wanted to start out by giving an overview of the case. Uh, many people have heard about the Lacey Peterson case at some point, especially since recently there have been several programs dedicated to it, including the two-hour investigation discovery special called Scott Peterson: An American Murder Mystery that came out in uh, November. And also the six-part A&E series, The Murder of Lacey Peterson. But in case you don't know much about it or haven't heard the details in a while, I'm just going to give a quick summary before we get into those details. Lacey Peterson was eight months pregnant in December of 2002. She went missing on Christmas Eve of that year in Modesto, California. Her husband, Scott, was suspected of her disappearance especially after an affair was discovered that he was having, and also because of inconsistencies in his statements. Police believe that he had dumped her body in the San Francisco Bay, and the body of Lacey and her unborn child washed up the following spring in the area he said he was fishing at. He was arrested and tried for the first-degree murder of Lacey and second-degree murder of unborn baby Connor. He was tried, found guilty, and sentenced to death. 
So that is the case in a nutshell. And the reason I've decided to partially dedicate this episode as a response to the A&E program is that in at least the first four episodes of the series, they lay out a case that is intended to cast doubt on whether Scott Peterson actually killed his wife. And I saw that many people were posting newly realized doubts about the case after watching at least some of the episodes. So we're going to get into the details of this case and actually go into the timeline and go into some of the theories that are laid out. But before we do that, we're going to talk a little bit about what our history with this case is and why we decided to discuss it. So Yolanda, what did you think of when you started hearing how the show was retelling this case? And maybe just tell us a little bit about your connection to this case and what, you know, if you followed it, what you remember about it, why this is interesting to you. Well, for me, um, it initially became really interesting to me because that year, uh, 2002 in December, I was actually moving from California to Texas uh, around that time period. I literally left in January, as I'm sure you remember. Yeah. This was a huge case that had broke right before I left. So I started to follow it. That was a real transitional time in my life. So it was something to hold on to California, I guess. So I was really following it. Uh, I followed the entire trial. I followed everything that I could get a hold of. Um, and the other thing that has always kind of creeped me out a little bit is that I was real near there uh, when this all went down. Our family, as you recall, lived nearby, not far from there. And I actually went there for Christmas dinner on Christmas Eve. So I was on some of those same highways that he would have driven to the marina. And so it, it just kind of creeped me out thinking of that. And I remember the weather and everything during that time period. It was a real kind of gray, drizzly, overcast. It was odd. That I remember that. It was just really odd, the weather that year. Yeah. So, I mean, because you lived actually closer to that area than I did, correct? You were yeah. living in, up in that area. I mean, you were in Concord at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, I was further down in, in the South Bay area. So Yeah, and I was in Contra Costa County. But it was, it was, a, it was a huge story here. It was in the news every single day. It was in, you know, our local news anchor would report on it every day. And so we did follow it daily of what was happening and all the media attention around it. Of course, it was also news that came out around Christmas, which we know that around the holidays, it's a slow news cycle. So that, I think, is one of the reasons why it became covered so extensively in the news right away. That was part of it. But the other part of it was just who Lacey was. She was a normal American woman, young, pretty, very, very pregnant And that always pulls at the heartstrings of people. So it became a very big um, story. And so we both, I think, followed it very closely as it was unfolding. And I, like you, read everything that came out about it. Because I was very fascinated about the players in the story and how it all unfolded. And we're going to talk about that. But I just feel there's so many parts to this story. It could seem very cut and dry if you think about it. We know that what happens, especially if a, a woman goes missing, especially a pregnant woman, and I'm going to get into some statistics about that later, that's the first thing we expect is the husband or the boyfriend or the baby's father is responsible. It's not that unusual. It's not that uncommon. So I don't think that especially made it that interesting, at least to me, because it is so common. 
but there was so many other pieces to it and it really kind of unfolded like a soap opera. So, um, yeah. And then afterwards, all these books and things came out and I read quite a few of them, um, just like you did. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Yeah. And I think it was, it, it was a combination of that. It was a combination of just the interesting aspects of it. And also because it was local to us. Um, that was really something that kept our attention. First of all, I want to go through some of the assertions made by the A&E program first, because these are some of the points we're going to provide additional details for that may help the listeners decide what they believe is true or not. And before we go any further with that, though, I think the first thing we need to do is we need to bring up a person who plays a very key element in this case, and that is Amber Fry. So well, let's, she does. yeah, <laughs> yeah, she does. And to the, to this day, she still is. She's still part of it. Um, she's been interviewed just recently uh, about everything that happened. She's very interesting as well, because not only did she come out as a key person in this case, but she also became part of the investigation. So Amber Fry was a 24 year old woman from Fresno, California. That's this kind of the central Valley of California. She was a massage therapist and a single mother of a 20-month-old daughter at the time that she met Scott through a mutual acquaintance. This was in late November of 2002. When she met him, she did not know he was married and had a very pregnant wife. They began dating. Their relationship quickly became serious with Scott coming to her home to make dinner and even picking up her daughter from school. Amber thought she'd met her dream man. He began right away talking of a future for the two of them together, and she believed he was sincere. So now that we know who she is, I'm going to go into the timeline. And the reason why I brought her up first is because we're going to begin with the timeline beginning in the October before um, everything unfolded around Christmas time. And we're doing this to give you an overall picture of how events unfolded. So in October of 2002, Uh, Scott Peterson attended a trade show for his job in Anaheim, California, which is in Southern California. While he's at the conference, he's speaking with a woman named Sean Sibley, um, who is another person attending the conference. He tells her he's single, that he lost, recently lost his soulmate, and eventually comes around to telling her that he wants to be fixed up. This is when she tells him about a friend of hers named Amber Fry. She made a point of asking him that making sure that he wasn't in a relationship because she wouldn't set him up with anybody unless she knew that he was serious. She straight up asks him, are you married? And he says, no, you can fix me up with your friend. That, I think, goes an extra step to being deceitful. And Mm -hmm. we'll see that again and again. And the other thing to know is that October 24th, right around that same time, Scott had just turned 30 years old. And he brings this up quite a bit that he's pushing 30 and there's a whole thing around that. Like he's not quite satisfied with where he's at in life at that point. One thing that I would say about Sean meeting Sean Sibley is the whole conversation they were having um, during that conference. He was joking around a lot. He was, I think from what the conversation was and what they later say, It sounded to me like he was feeling her out to see if she would be interested in him. Mm -hmm. And when that, when that didn't fly because she was happily in a relationship, then he tried a different tactic. 
There was definitely that because there was people at the conference who were saying that he was making sexual jokes with her. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there was quite a bit of that. And, and I think you're right. Because, of course, he told her he was single because he was trying exactly. to hit on her. So at this time, Lacey actually works in Modesto as a substitute teacher. And on November 2nd, now she's already into her pregnancy, pretty late into her pregnancy. This was, she was in her seventh month, I believe, in November. Her last day as a substitute teacher was in, on November 2nd. In late October and early November, she reported becoming dizzy and vomiting while walking her dog. And this is going to become important um, in the overall timeline of the case. So on that same day, November 2nd, Scott calls Amber for the first time because Sean had given him her number, and so this is when he made the first approach to to give her a call. On November 6th, Lacey reports dizziness, dizziness while walking, and her doctor tells her to only exercise late in the day, if at all. In the morning, I guess, apparently she was more dizzy in the morning when she first got up, um, and this is when she used to always walk her dog, was first thing in the morning, and he told her, don't do that, you know, you're too dizzy in the morning, wait until later in the day, or don't do it at all if you're feeling too, you're not feeling well, or you're feeling too dizzy. On November 8th, just a couple days later, Lacey reports having shortness of breath while walking for more than even a short distance. She was well into her pregnancy, and as a lot of you know, you do. You get very tired. Your feet swell, your legs swell. You know, it's, it gets difficult. You want to sleep. You want to sleep. Um, on November 14th, Lacey tells a friend that she has had to stop walking. She uses a wheelchair to get around while at a family vacation in Disneyland over Thanksgiving. She also tells her yoga instructor that she felt bad that Mackenzie, which is her dog, her golden retriever that she's had since he was a puppy, probably thought that she didn't love him anymore since she never walked him. November 20th, Scott and Amber have their first date. Do you want to describe the date at all, Yolanda? Do you know? (laughs) I'm sure you know about the date. Do I have to? It makes me kind of (laughs) ill. Well, I'm not going to, so you have to. He showed up to pick her up. All these roses, like he's, you know, did he pick her up or did they meet at the hotel? I can't remember. I believe they met somewhere. Yeah, they met at the Elephant Bar for a drink. That's right. And And then then he he goes back to the hotel. Yes. He wanted to take a shower. Sounds like a a Harvey Weinstein thing. (laughs) First of all, that to me is a big friggin' red flag. It's like, uh, you should have taken a shower before you went out to go. Yeah, they go back to the hotel, but then they go to dinner. But wait, at at the hotel, didn't he have the champagne yes, and, and the strawberries? Rose, and strawberries and the whole thing. Just, just, it sounds very <laughs> good and dry. But then they went to a sushi place. Well, you know, some people at you know, Japanese restaurants, they have these private rooms, you know, that you can go in yeah. and they close the little you know, paper doors. Um, so they had that. So it was all very, he had it very planned to be this very private, romantic kind of whole setup thing, okay? And that's, that's going to come, you know, back later on about just when we talk a little bit more about his character and who Scott Peterson was. So that was the first date on November 20th. On December 2nd, he goes to, this is when he goes to Fry's home. She, she lives in Madeira. He actually goes to her house. He said that he's going to make dinner for her, and I believe her daughter was there as well, and um, just have this whole thing which is pretty quick don't you think like right after your first date this guy comes over and it's going to make you dinner and you have your kid there i mean does that seem quick well to you? let's back up a step <laughs> so she had sex with him on the first oh night, yeah yeah, night. i forgot about that and then it was less than two weeks from the time they met he not only made dinner for them 
he went to the daycare and picked up her daughter for her. Yeah, that to me was really out of bounds. I mean, this guy's a stranger and you have a young child that's even a female young child, which is even more. Of, I know. Yeah. Mm-mm. But, but, you know, she was, a, I don't know. She was young. She wasn't that young, but. She was young, but I think it also speaks to how he could come across. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Like, he he seemed like the perfect guy. I mean, he was like already talking mm-hmm. about you know, that he was serious about her. He kind of put himself out there as this businessman. He owned a he owned a successful business. He traveled a lot for work internationally. He had it all together. So mm-hmm. and she was a struggling single mom. So I'm sure this was very um attractive to her. On December 6th, Sean Sibley, remember the one that introduced Amber to Scott, finds out that Scott is married and she calls him. So what's his response to this when Sean calls him? And says, hey, you know, I just found out that you're full of crap. So I hear you're married. That's when he said that he had been married, Mm -hmm. but he'd lost his wife. Mm -hmm. That's the first time he makes that statement, right? Mm -hmm. He full on balls. He cries Mm -hmm. and asks Sean, please don't tell her. Let me tell her. He tells her not to tell Amber she found out before he reveals it to her. So that's on December 6th. This is an interesting point. On December 7th, the day after that, Scott searches the classified ads for a boat. I don't think anybody had been talking about buying a boat. That was just no. kind of out of the blue, right? Yep. December 8th, the day after that, he does several internet searches, including the words boat and ramp and Pacific and other words that are included in that search were Watsonville and San Francisco. He also searches nautical charts, bay currents, and looks at a map of Brook Island, Brooks Island, which is in the Berkeley Marina. The following day after that, December 9th, this is when he talks to Amber. And he tells Amber that he was married, but lost his wife, and this will be the first Christmas without her. On that same day, he buys a boat. Okay, got that so far? (laughs) Okay. That sounds like a plan for me. Yeah. I mean, this could all be very innocuous, but we kind of know the outcome. So this is why it's really kind of creepy when you go backwards and you look at this timeline in this way. Yeah, when you lay it all on top of each other, you can really, it it starts to kind of form a full picture. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so everybody remembers because what comes out in, later on during the investigation, we'll go into that, is a picture of Amber and Scott together. And they're at a Christmas party and he's wearing a stupid grin on his face and a dorky Santa hat. She's wearing a very nice red strapless dress, right? Okay, so that, but here's the thing. I, and this is what I just found out too. He actually went to two parties with Amber. He went the first one on December 11th. Mm-hmm. He goes to a party. Here's the thing too, what we didn't talk about how far is it from where he lives to where Amber lives? Quite far. Yeah, because it's about, what, 100 miles at least? It's a, it's a couple hours. Yeah, I think it's a couple hours away. Um, she lives in, like I said, central California. He lives up in you know, northern California. But, yeah, it's about at least, it's at least two hours away. Well, I know for one of the parties that he told Lacey that his boss called him for an emergency meeting and he had to go to San Francisco to meet him. Oh, okay. And he wouldn't be able to go to the party with her. 
That right, was the second. She went to a party on the same day. Yeah, that was the second one. But that's the one that, where the, the the picture comes from about that's with him the one and who Amber. She's yes. wearing the pantsuit, right? There's also a picture of, of Lacey, and that comes into actually comes into the trial. So, but on December 11th, three days before that Christmas party, Scott went to another party with Sean. This is Sean Sibley had a party. I think it was for her fiance's birthday, and she invited Amber and Scott, and they went as a couple. So that was December 11th. Three days later is the Christmas party that he goes to with Amber. On that same day, like you said, Lacey had a Christmas party of her own that she was, um, they were supposed to go to. He told her he couldn't go because he well, didn't tell her why, but he was with Amber. And she goes to that holiday party alone. And there is a picture of her that comes into the trial that they show. And it's been all over the news at that time of Lacey and, um, at that party alone. And she's sitting yeah, she's sitting. Yeah, she's not even standing. She looks, and she looks very pregnant mm-hmm. in that picture. So during their time together, Amber had told Scott that she would never date a man who cheated on a girlfriend or a wife or a married man. Amber t- talked to Scott a lot about her life, about her beliefs. She was, at the time, she was a, um, she had become a Christian. She talked to him a lot about pain she had gone through in her life. She really kind of shared a lot of like emotion with him about a lot of things. And she told him that her father had left her mother for someone else when she was just a little girl. And that was a huge loss for her. So she would never allow that to happen in her life by dating a man who was married. Um, As well, she had been left by the man who was her daughter's father. They were never married. Her baby daddy. Her baby daddy. Yeah. They never married. So that was something she said she couldn't forgive. You know, she was looking for a man who was what responsible, who was loyal, who wasn't a cheater. And of course, so he, he supposedly <clears throat> fit all of this. Yeah, and of course, you know, he would never because he's the best boyfriend ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, he brought strawberries and champagne. Oh God! No, please, I'm trying not to gag. So. <laughs> On December 15th, he tells Amber that he'll be gone until the end of January, that he's traveling. And remember that his job is, he does actually do some traveling for his job, but not like he's telling people. When does he have time to work? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) This is his thing. He's telling Amber that he's going to be gone until the end of January. Like this is, this is December 15th. So this is like, he'll be gone for six weeks, right? Um, And that night he has dinner with Lacey and her parents. Now, remember, he bought the boat on December 9th. 9th. This is December 15th. He's having dinner with Lacey and her parents, Sharon and Ron. Ron is an avid fisherman, okay, and talks all the time about fishing, and he goes out on his boat, and he does all these things, right? The boat is never mentioned at that dinner. and it's crazy. Yeah. And there's two reasons why I bring that up. Number one, if... You know, this is your father-in-law, basically. And this is something you could talk about, right? You could say, hey, yeah. you know, I've got a boat. Da, da, da. You can ask his advice. So, you know, where should I go? Do you want to come? All you want to impress him. I want to impress him. Yeah. And you might want to learn because when what I could tell, Scott was never a you know, huge fisherman. All of a sudden, mm-hmm. he's got this boat and he's going to go fishing, whatever. Um, the other thing is... Lacey is extremely close with her mother. They talk every single day, sometimes multiple times a day. They don't always see each other every day, but they do talk almost every day, right? She says that Lacey tells her almost everything, and especially about big purchases. 
you know, things that are like major purchases, she would definitely tell her she's always, she always has. Mm -hmm. She didn't mention anything about them buying a boat and they didn't know anything about the boat until after the fact. So that's something that will come up later as well. Okay. So that's December 15th. Scott continues to call Amber while he supposedly is away. He calls her on December 19th, December 22nd, and December 23rd, but no calls were made to her on December 24th. Oh, he was too busy. Yeah, well, we'll get to that. Okay, so on December 20th, Lacey reports that the baby has turned and she has painful swelling in her feet. So she's really not comfortable at this point. Yeah, she's huge and she's not comfortable at all. Um, everybody says she was always very energetic. She was always doing a million things. And this was just really starting to, you know, slow her down because she was late into her pregnancy. On December 23rd, Scott rents a post office box at mailboxes, et cetera. Well, we have to kind of guess why that would be because he's trying to keep in touch with Amber. He actually gives her this address at mailboxes, et cetera, that she can send him things, which... Well, it was going to be Christmas. Yes, and he was going to be away, and she wanted to be able to send him gifts. Yeah, and he needed a place to do it. Like, because he, even if he gave her his, his work address, she could show up at his work. Yeah. That wouldn't be good, right? He certainly can't give her his home address, so he's got to come up with something. So he gives her a post office box. And you would think, okay, well, I'm going to digress a little bit. Mm-hmm. You would think, as being somebody as suspicious as she was, really trying to figure everything out, as far as, you know, I don't want anybody that's married and this and that. I'm sorry. And then he comes out with the story about, oh, I was married. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to tell you. Wouldn't you be a little suspicious about a P.O. box? Yeah. I think that falls into the category of wanting to believe. Mm-hmm. Because it, it would solve a lot of her problems if this guy really was who he said he was. And that's really true. wanted what he said he wanted. Because she, like I said, she was a struggling single mother She had had one failed relationship after another. You know, life was tough. And here's this guy who's basically a Prince Charming on the white horse who comes. And she wants to believe that this is going to be her dream man and everything she ever wanted. Okay, so now we're coming up to December 23rd, which is the day before Lacey goes missing. On December 23rd, Lacey and Scott go to Amy Rocha's hair salon. Amy Rocha is Lacey's sister, or half-sister, but basically her sister, and she is a um, hairstylist. They go to Amy's hair salon because Scott's going to get his hair cut. While he, they're there, he says that he's going golfing the next day. Amy then asks him to stop and pick up a gift basket that she's ordered that has to be picked up before the place closes on December on Christmas Eve at 3 p.m. He agrees to do so. Then he asks Amy if she wants to come over for pizza because him and Lacey are getting ready to go home, and I guess they're, they're going to get get pizza. She says no, that she has plans. This, this is going to be a question for me later, but I'll, I'll put that a pin in that for now. I had a question about that too. Yeah. So Lacey and Scott stopped to pick up a pizza on the way home. Apparently they take it home and they, they eat pizza at four 45. Lacey speaks to her friend, Stacy. She tells her that she's upset that she can't throw her annual Christmas party as she usually does, but she is just too exhausted all the time and that she even has to rest frequently throughout the day just doing regular chores or anything. And she says she can hardly get, she can hardly get anything done. She can hardly do anything because she's just so tired. Okay. Um, at 8.30 p.m., Lacey calls her mother 
and that's the last time her mother will speak with her. So the pizza thing, <laughs> why did that Why did that become a question mark for you? I'll, I can tell you why it did for me. Um, well, I was trying to figure out why he would invite her mm-hmm. over unless it was just an additional alibi mm-hmm. um, of where, you know, that she was home, that they... I couldn't think of anything else. Yeah, because I thought, okay, if this was something that was planned, that was going to be set in motion that night, he surely wouldn't want somebody else there. So that's what made me think, well, maybe it wasn't premeditated. Maybe it was something that he had planned. Because there's a lot of theories around this, and we'll you know get to more of them later, but maybe it was something he was trying to figure out a way to get out of this relationship or get whatever he was planning to do, but maybe it wasn't going to be that day because that was Christmas. You know what I mean? And so I'm wondering if it wasn't supposed to be, you know, after Christmas or something, but something happened that night. Something came up, something was discovered, something was said. Um, I don't know that that's, that's to me a big question mark. If something happened that night and he snapped. Well, I've thought that too. Um, the only other thing that I was wondering, so you're sitting in a salon, you know how it is when you go to get your hair cut, everyone's just talking, they're blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. You know, whoever your hairstylist is, is telling you about their day or what's going to happen and what they're going to do later, you know? So I'm wondering he, if he heard her say something like what her plans were that night. Mm-hmm. And full well knew she would say no to pizza. Right. Yeah. Like she, you know, she was going to go to dinner or she was really busy or she had something going, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And maybe to just make it seem like, well, but I invited her, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? As an additional alibi kind of thing. Right. Okay. So now we're going to get to December 24th and I've broken this up into basically hourly because this is a day that the timeline is going to be very important. And as we go into some of the details, some of the theories, so I'm going to go basically took everything that I could find from court records, from the police interrogations, from things that the family said, the reported, and put this all together in a timeline of that entire day as much as I could get. I'm sure there's some things. a lot of work. (laughs) I'm sure there's some things that were like, that I don't have in there. And I know, actually I know there are, but, um, but I tried to get as much as I can just to, just to get a picture of that day of what happened. And again, these are all things that I could, that actually were corroborated, not just, there was a couple of things and I'll tell you when those come up that were a, a guesstimate or something that Scott reported that we can't either verify or know for sure, but at least it'll kind of fill out the picture. So beginning 8 a.m. on the 24th, which is Christmas Eve day, between 8 and 8.45 a.m., the home laptop at the Peterson house shows searches for weather in San Jose, an online shopping search for a scarf at the Gap, and also a search for a sunflower umbrella. Now, here's what's interesting because I found this as I was doing the research, that everyone knows that Lacey loves sunflowers. She even had a tattoo of one on her ankle. So that's interesting. I remember okay. that, yeah. Yeah. Apparently there's more than one computer at the house. There's at least two or three, but the laptop is the one that, only, that Lacey uses. The other 
exclusively. Yeah, exclusively. The other ones she doesn't use. Scott uses the other ones, but she uses this one. But here's the thing that I found, and it was like a one-line item in this, and I'm like, wait a minute. Okay, we need, to, we need to say this because, again, this didn't come out in a lot of places, but it was something that the investigation did point out in the trial. On that same computer, which this is what people are saying, is that, okay, Lacey was there that morning, and she was looking up these things. It was not stuff that, stuff that Scott would look up. She's the only one that uses this computer. There was an email sent from that laptop that morning between that time from an address that Scott used. And this was an address that Scott used for things like emailing Sean Sibley. It was one that he used, I think, believe there was an email address also that he used when he was doing the back and forth emails about the boat. Um, It was not his normal email address that he used. It was another one that he created, which it said like S... L- SLP something or other. Yeah, SLP something, something, something. So that an email was sent from that address that only Scott would know at 8.45 a.m. on that computer. After that, there was no more activity on, a, on that computer that day. So we do know that he at least used that computer. The, uh, the common belief was that he's, he never used that computer, which is not true, obviously, from that email. At... 9.48 a.m., this is something that's going to be part of Scott's alibi. At 9.48 a.m. exactly, the segment of Martha Stewart's show about meringue cookies aired. <laughs> and the investigators actually did this. They looked and they found out exactly when this portion, because he said they were watching TV that morning and they're watching Martha Stewart. And it was very specific that he said, oh, yeah, she was making some kind of meringue cookies. They went back through whatever and found out that actually started aired at 9.48 a.m., Scott later, later tells detectives that he and Lacey were watching that show that morning, so that's why that's important. At between 9.50 and 10.08 a.m., Scott leaves the house. He first tells detectives that he left the house approximately 9.30, but the timeline changed when they were able to verify some other things. He Okay, so he says several things, and I'm going to bring up some, and I think you know some other ones, Yolanda, that he said Lacey was mopping the floors when he left, and mm-hmm. told him that she was planning to walk Mackenzie, their dog. Um, okay, so the mopping thing is interesting because they, investigators talked to their housekeeper who had come to the house and cleaned the house the day before on December 23rd. She said she had mopped all the floors then. Yeah. So that's interesting Why? because this comes up all the time. She was mopping the floors there was, because they, the bucket and the, and the mop and the water will come into play. But if we know that the housekeeper was there the day before and verified that she had mopped all the floors, why would an eight-month pregnant woman who's extremely fatigued all the time be mopping floors? Not to mention the fact that she was getting ready for the dinner party she was going to have at the house with just the close family. Mm-hmm. Which was the next December. day. She was spending more of her energy on that mm-hmm. than she would have been. I think that's why the housekeeper came on the 23rd. Right. So that right there kind of pulls that whole idea about that into question for me. Mm-hmm. So me too. records show that he checked his voicemail on his cell phone at 10.08 a.m. And he says that he did that from his warehouse. So that would mean he had left his house right before 10 a.m. Because they said it's like a nine-minute drive to his office, a warehouse, whatever it is. Um, so that's that, where that timeline comes in. He's saying he's there at 9.48 a.m. when Martha Stewart's on. Right. Um, And it sounds like he may have been. Um, But 
Then he says Lacey's going to walk the dog. Meanwhile, at 10.18 a.m., and this is also corroborated from receipts and things that the woman brought in to show, because she actually went and checked, checked her cell phone records and stuff, because when this was going on, she wanted to be sure. At 10.18 a.m., Karen Service, which is the next-door neighbor, sees the dog Mackenzie outside trailing his leash by himself. The gate to their backyard is open. She puts him into the backyard and closes the gate. Because the whole idea is that she was walking the dog, right? But that doesn't give her a lot of time. If he left right before 10 and she sees the dog at 10, 18. And also you said, he said that she was still mopping, right? Yes. And so she or... She had to like throw <laughs> down the mop and run out of the house. <laughs> and he, okay, so he said several things. He said she was mopping the floor. He said she was curling her hair. And he also and he also said that yeah because he told this to investigators at different times when they interviewed him he also said that she was barefoot when he left mm-hmm. like he she was like not dressed yet really she wasn't she didn't have her shoes or socks on whatever so for her to you know waddle on over and get her shoes you know how hard it is to put on your shoes when you're pregnant in the first place yes <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do she's got to go get the dog she's got to get the leash go for a walk and somehow the dog, something happens to Lacey and the dog is left alone and the the neighbor finds her. And this is all within 15 minutes. It has to and, be. Mm-hmm. and the neighbor also uh, says that the leash, when she finds Mackenzie, the leash is muddy already enough so that she has to go back in her house to wash her hands. Right. So, I mean, unless she was running, you know, with this dog, which remember she's saying she can hardly walk. Because she's mm-hmm. so, she gets dizzy. She's just tired all the time. It just seems unlikely that she would be walking the dog at all. I mean, it's possible, but it's pretty unlikely. So, okay. So now there's something else that comes into play here. The people across the street, they're, they're the Medina family. They leave for vacation at 10.30 a.m. that morning, directly across the street from um, Scott and, and Lacey's house. And that's going to come into play because... Some of you might remember this, and we'll bring it up later, is their house gets robbed sometime during that time, and this becomes part of a theory that we'll talk about that the um, defense has about what happened to Lacey. So between 10.30 and 10.56 a.m., we know this from records, Scott's work computer at the warehouse is accessed, between those t- specifically between those times, 10.30 and 10.56 a.m. He checks and sends email he looks up instructions on putting together a mortiser that they had ordered for his, uh, I guess, for the warehouse. He says he's at the warehouse for only 20 minutes after he logs off the computer. So that would make it like 1120, um, actually a little bit less, not like maybe 1116, 17. He, but then in, the, in that time, he says he puts together the mortiser. He cleans up around the office. He loads a toolbox into the truck. He cuts himself on the toolbox Then he goes into the cab of his truck for a napkin. He bleeds in his truck. He cleans off his finger and all of that in about 16 to 20 minutes. So I'm thinking, how long does it take to put together a more? He had to look up the instructions so he doesn't know how Mm -hmm. to do it. So how did that all happen in 20 minutes? Because this is also going to be part of the defense's thing that he was doing all these things. And I'm saying the timeline doesn't really bear out that he had that much time. 
Yeah. Because we're going to see how long it's going to take him to get to the marina and what time he actually gets there because we know exactly what time he gets there. Okay. Oh, here's the one. <laughs> there are always things. I don't know if you guys do this when you're listening to true crime or you read a story or you're following a case. There are always these little elements that jump out at you and you think, wait a minute, that for some reason is a big clue for me. And this was the one. At 10.38 a.m., um, the Peterson's neighbor reports that their window blinds are still drawn shut. And they had looked specifically at their clock. They knew exactly the time. I forget exactly how it went. But they knew very certainly that they looked at the clock or whatever. It was 10.38 a.m., looked outside and saw that their window blinds were still drawn shut. Now, remember, she's supposed to have been home that morning she was supposed to even have walked the dog and then maybe went missing, right? But I don't know about you, but I tend to have a routine every single morning. And this is what these people were saying. This is why they noticed this. Because every morning, probably, you know, with, by like 8 a.m., her window blinds were open when she was home. Mm-hmm. When they weren't open, they knew they weren't home. They were on vacation. They were out of town, whatever, Right. I know this because I do this myself. It's like a routine. I do the same things every morning when I go downstairs. You know, I have to take care of the dogs. I throw the dogs outside. And the first thing I do is I open my blinds because it's dark in there. And I don't like a dark house. It's depressing. So I open up the <laughs> window. The same blind- way. Yeah, open up the window blinds and, you know, do other certain things. So to me, when I see, even when I, I see this with my own neighbors, when I see that, like, say, their porch light, is on in the morning, I know they're not home yep. because I know she turns off her porch light every single day, right? And so it's probably somebody else is staying there or they're on vacation or something, right? Or there's, it could be that they're sick, you know, but yep. there's something happened, something happened. Um, so that was a big, I mean, and that's a small thing, but to me, it really kind of raised that red flag, like, mm, nope. I don't think well, she, and, was, she was there or she wasn't able to do what she normally did. And think about this, too. He said she was mopping. Mm-hmm. Would you mop without the sunlight in so you could see what you're mopping? No. You wouldn't do a lot of things. I mean, yeah. she was supposed to be on the computer. She was supposed to be, you know, she had already eaten breakfast, he would say later. She had, Watching television. And he would say what kind of cereal she had eaten. I mean, he was very specific in things, almost too specific. When you have some things that are too specific... That is, and I was thinking about that earlier because I was thinking this morning. So when I left this morning, if I called my husband right now and said, hey, what exactly did I do this morning before I left to work? Do you think that he would be able to recite exactly what I'd been watching on television? Yeah. Who does? (laughs) And and what I I don't know what I watched on television. I have no clue. He probably wouldn't even know what I was wearing. Yeah. No. Mm Mm-mm. No, no. So, you know, and vice versa. Okay. So I'm thinking about it right this second. What was my husband wearing this morning? See, it took me a minute. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Especially think about it, especially when you're in that kind of a stressful situation where they're, they're asking him these questions when they believe that his, you know, very pregnant wife is missing. Nobody knows Mm -hmm. where she is, if she's okay. If she fell down a hill and, or she was abducted, they have no, and he's going to remember all the specific stuff under that kind of pressure, under yeah. that kind of stress. 
that's that Martha really, Stewart was making meringue cookies. Yeah. Come on now. He would say, yeah, I think, you know, I, I can see somebody saying, you know, I think, yeah, we were in the living room. I think the TV was on, you know, I don't, maybe we usually turn mm-hmm. it on. I mean, you don't know that stuff in, in to that specific a degree. It's just that to me really is telling. And then we're going to get to this. This was a big part of the A&E presentation was that all of the sightings of Lacey after Scott would have left the house, right? All these sightings of her, so many people saying that they saw a woman walking a dog, saw a pregnant woman walking a dog through a trail through the park because there's this park with all these trails right near their house that's where she used to walk her dog every morning. Um, Some people even say they know, definitely know for sure that it was Lacey. And they're saying that they're seeing her up until 10.45 a.m. doing this. Okay, number one, we got to throw that out right now because we know that Mackenzie was back in front of her house at 10.18. So at least most of those people who were saying, oh, we saw her at 10.45, I know it was 10.45, they have to be wrong. And I'm not saying they're lying. I'm saying they're mistaken, that -hmm. it was not her. There's no way. So, but there's, this is going to be a big part of the defense's arguments. Between 1035 and 1050, their mail carrier was walking through that route. And this is the name of the street they live on as Covina Avenue. On Covina Avenue tells detectives that he remembers nothing unusual. Okay, so this was his first, the first time they asked him. Later, he will report seeing um, the Peterson's gate open and not hearing the dog barking. Okay, and that, I guess, means what? On the documentary, um, they're trying to say that then what must have happened was that when the next door neighbor, Karen, put Mackenzie in the backyard, Lacey was still home. So she must have been the one to open the gate and then go for a walk Mm. with the dog. But that doesn't make much sense. Yeah. Um, Why would he have a leash on? Yeah, why did he have leash on? Why was it already muddy? And also, um, the mail carrier in the initial uh, investigation by the police, when they he took his statement, he said he didn't even remember if he had delivered a package to them that day. Right. So how did he all of a sudden specifically remember, oh, the gate was open and the dog wasn't barking at me? Yeah. And and it's like, it's one of those things. I think there's a lot to this case where people come out with this information. They are trying to be helpful. I don't think for the most part, I mean, there's a few wackos out there, but for the most part, I think people are trying to be helpful. But what happens is our memories are so iffy that anything could make us believe that something happened that didn't happen. We power just, of suggestion. Yeah, total power of suggestion. And there's a lot of that because a lot of this stuff was in the media. They knew there was a missing pregnant woman. They knew that the dog had been found outside of the house. They, you know, there were several things that they knew. And this came into play when they said, wait a minute, I think, yeah, I saw that. I, now I remember, mm-hmm. you know, this happened. And so, yeah, because he, I'm sure, had already heard that the dog was wandering and the neighbor found it. So he thought, oh, yeah. And he could have seen the the gate open on a different day, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, that happens all the time. And I think a lot of these people, the people that were talking about the woman walking, you know, the dog through the park, they'd probably seen her many, many times. And Mm -hmm. because some of the people were saying, some of the people were neighbors who who could see out the window, could see people walking through the trail or into the park out of their window. 
And they probably saw this multiple times and it just became part of their memory. This is why we know that eyewitness testimony is really not that great unless there's something to corroborate it. It really, you really can't, you really have to take it with a grain of salt because our memories are so imperfect that we just can't go by it. For example, the next door neighbor initially thought that she had put the dog in the backyard at a certain time, had to go back and use her phone records and a receipt Mm -hmm. to narrow down that timeline. And she was off by like, what, 15 minutes? Yeah, by 15 minutes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and she was sure, oh yeah, it was right after, you know, this time or right before 10 or, and because that's probably what normally would have happened, but for whatever reason, she made another stop and that took a few more minutes or whatever happened Mm -hmm. and that altered it. And that wasn't her normal kind of memory. So she substituted it with what was normal until she was able to corroborate and say, oh no, this is what actually happened. So, And the other thing that probably, because everybody was reporting that said they'd seen this pregnant woman and what she was wearing, mm-hmm. one of two things. I mean, I know that we'd also heard that there was a pregnant woman that they had found that had been walking a dog in the neighborhood um, that looked similar to Lacey, I believe. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is, is I believe they were reporting in the news what Scott said she was wearing on that day. Yeah, they were. So that could, you know, you could easily see that on TV. That gets put into your mind. Oh, yeah, I did see a woman wearing this and that. And the reason they would know that is because, remember, at first she was missing. So they had mm-hmm. a description of her for people to look for her. Right. And he said she was wearing black pants and a white blouse. Mm-hmm. Which he pulled that out of his butt because <laughs> he he said several things after that. He said, "Oh, she was still wearing her pajama pants." I mean, there are all kinds of things, but that mm-hmm. was the one that was put out for the searchers, and yeah. so people said, "Oh, yeah, I saw that woman," and that's what happened on that one. Which, I think. you know, as a side note, she was actually wearing that the day before. Yes, or at least a portion of the day. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things. And of course, later they're going to try to put these together, cobble them together for as an alibi. Um, and, you know, it, it could make sense if you don't know the other facts. And you think you say, wait a minute, no, I got to throw that out. And this is exactly, I think, what the jury did. But we'll get to that. Okay, now we're going to get into the Medina um, house robbery thing. So at 11.40 a.m., a woman in the neighborhood says that she sees a white van parked across the street from the Petersons' home. That would be the Medina's house. And in front of it, there were three shorter, dark men standing near it, like behind it. Like, you know, I guess it had like the cargo doors in the back. And mm-hmm. she said they were standing like by the back door of this van. She said they, she remembers because they looked at her. They continued to stare at her as she passed by in her car. She gave this statement to police on um, the 27th. So it was a couple of days later. And this is true. There was a burglary of that house while the Medinas were gone. They were gone until the 27th. They got home on the 27th. But the fact is that two men were arrested and admitted to the burglary of the Medina's house. They actually stole a safe from inside the house Mm -hmm. and I think some other things. Uh, One of the men's name was Stephen Wayne Todd. I guess he was kind of a known burglar, um, but he he admitted to it. Here's the thing. I saw the picture that they posted, and they put it on the A&E thing, which is, I think, odd that they didn't bring it up. When they kept going over this woman saying, you know, she'd seen these men, they were shorter, dark men, you know, in the 
the video that they created for the Annie, they look like Hispanic men, which makes sense. Um, Modesto is, has a, a large Hispanic population. But the, the picture they put up of the two men who actually robbed the house were not two or younger Hispanic men. They were two older white men. Mm-hmm. They didn't look Hispanic in the least. They didn't yeah. look short in the least. And they didn't look young in the least. So great, great eyewitness. Yeah. So that was, so again, throw that one out. Right. So the only thing she got right was the fact that they were robbing the house. Yeah. Okay. And he says that they ransacked the home and stole the safe in the very early morning hours of December 26th. Okay. So that was the day after Lacey, two days after, right. Or maybe the day after if we're, we're talking the 24th or the 25th, this happened in the early morning hours of the 26th. So, Again, the defense is going to say, oh, no, this isn't, you know, true, that this had to happen. And they're, they're, trying, to, they're, they're trying to fudge the, the dates and the timeline to cast doubt, because that's what you do as a defense attorney. Um, yeah. But the detectives had this confession, and the guy said, yeah, it was early morning hours of twenty six. even told them when, you know, and what they did. So that's why they didn't. They didn't put a lot of time or stock into that whole burglary kind of thing um, because of that. They already had this information. Oh, and we're talking about the package. 11.45, um, the neighbor, Karen, again, says she sees the package still in the mailbox at the Petersons at 11.45. And she comes home, I guess, later in the day. She said she still sees it there. It's, it's 4.05 p.m. is when she arrived home. So the package was never taken out of the mailbox. Okay, so now we're going to get to Scott. We know that he gets to the Berkeley Marina. He drives in to the Berkeley Marina, which, like we said, is about 90 miles from Modesto, about an hour and a half away. And because the timestamp, when you drive into the Berkeley Marina, you have to get like a ticket. It's kind of like, you know, those parking meter kind of things to, mm-hmm. to get to the boat launch. And so it's a boat launch ticket. Um, and the timestamp on there says it's 12.54, so just before 1 p.m. he gets there. Then he says between 1 to 2.30 approximately, he's out on the boat at Berkeley Marina fishing. He then calls home after leaving, leaving the marina and leaves a message for Lacey. He says on the message it's 2.15 p.m. and that he's not going to make it back in time to pick up that gift basket that her sister wanted and said maybe she could go get it. At 2.30... Scott calls another friend from his cell phone. He doesn't mention that he's been fishing at all. At 2.40 p.m., he then calls his father. He also, he again doesn't mention going fishing on the bay. He only reports plans for the rest of the evening that he's going to dinner with Lacey to the Roaches. Um, at 3.25, he, there's a receipt from a Chevron station where Scott stopped for gas in Livermore, California, which would be on the way home. At 3.45, okay, so he's trying to reach Lacey. He calls her right after he leaves. He's calling friends. He stops for gas. At 3.45, so 10 minutes after he gets his receipt at the gas station, Amy Rocha, Lacey's sister, calls Scott's cell phone and gets no answer. Okay. She then calls the house, and no one answers there either. At 3.52, Scott calls Lacey's cell phone but doesn't leave a message. Now, he's on his cell phone. Because he's been calling people all afternoon, like 10 minutes after Amy Rocha calls, he's calling Lacey, but he does not pick up Amy Rocha's call, which is... Because he knew why she was calling, probably. Yeah. So that's odd. Um, At 4.05, like I said, 
Karen sees the package still in the Peterson mailbox. He, she had just gotten home. She did not see um, Scott's truck there yet. So she did mention that. At 4.15, Scott says he arrives at his warehouse. Remember, he's got the boat. So he's got to go unload the boat. Um, he says that he only stays there about five minutes. At 4.30, Scott says he arrives home. Scott and Lacey are expected at the Roaches for dinner at 6. Okay, so he has a little bit of time. When he gets home, Scott says Lacey's Land Rover is in the driveway, but she's not home. He sees Mackenzie in the backyard with his leash on, and he takes the leash off. The back door is also unlocked. But this apparently this still didn't concern him. So he takes a shower, gets out of the shower, eats pizza, and then calls Sharon Rocha. He says he assumed that she was running errands, but her car was there. Okay, what else did he do when he got home? Well, he washed his clothes before he took a shower, threw his clothes in the washing machine. Mm -hmm. He had also said he that the, the mop and the bucket were right inside the door and that he threw the water out and put the mop bucket outside mm -hmm. on the um Because there was, it was porch. still wet. It was still wet there. Right. He grabbed uh, the pizza from the night before mm -hmm. out of the fridge. Ugh. And milk, which right there makes him a monster if you eat pizza <laughs> with milk. Case he closed. Also, <laughs> <laughs> You're guilty. Um, guilty of being gross. He, he did get milk, and he had... Uh, he pulled out the ranch. He was eating ranch with his pizza. Mm -hmm. Which what does that signify to you, Yolanda? <laughs> no, you need. My to. husband will think this is the funniest story ever. <laughs> so, I had this like epiphany with this whole bottle of ranch thing. So, yes, some people eat pizza with ranch. I do. I know the the feeling. You know, I know liking that. But you just killed your wife. Took her, dumped her body out on the on the bay, and you're gonna just saunter on in, get changed, take a shower, grab something to eat, pull out the ranch to eat with with your pizza, like dude, every other day thing, you know? It's ah, uh, yeah, it's just like normal day. It's oh, a psychopath. A normal and, day of murder. <laughs> And the milk, you're right. That makes it. <laughs> that makes you a monster. Now, the other thing, what it was on the counter with, with the pizza, and the police found this, um, was that while he was sitting, and I have this vision in my head, he's standing there at the counter with this cold piece of pizza and this ranch and, and this cup <laughs> can't of get milk. Over that ranch, can you? Damn ranch. <laughs> um, I wonder if it was Hidden Valley. It's ruined forever for me. Um and he has the phone book out. Now, you younger people probably don't even know what a phone book is. <laughs> but a phone book, it would be delivered to your house. It was like the internet before you had one. So it had all the phone numbers to everything, restaurants, um, you know. Residences like, too, but a lot of businesses. Let's see yellow yeah, pages. Yeah. The yellow pages. So this was open to the yellow pages. Yellow pages were for businesses. And apparently when the police got there, they found that it was actually open next to the pizza box. Um, and it was open to an ad for a criminal defense attorney. <laughs> you might have wanted to close that book. It would be funny if it was just like the air conditioning kicked on and rippled it over, open to that page just because, you know, somebody was trying to say something. And or is he really that stupid? 
But we'll, said it, we'll come to find that he is a, kind of really that stupid. So Yeah. Well, it, it was a, a giant ad, apparently, and it was for a criminal defense attorney that had been a previous prosecutor but was now in private practice. And one of the things that he defended was um, murder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was on the ad. Yeah, well, that's... Yeah, you're going to need them. Well, let me eat my pizza yeah. with my ranch and <laughs> and check out this criminal defense attorney while I'm at it. So, okay, so he gets home at 4.30. He does all these things. And apparently he takes off his clothes right there in front of the wash machine and throws them in the wash. And here's the other thing. There was... There were clothes in the washing machine that he took out, but he said he did that later on because he had chemical, he worked with chemicals, and so he didn't wash his clothes with the other clothes because he would get chemicals on his clothes. Of course, he wasn't working with chemicals because he was fishing. And I just found this out today. Those things that he took out of the washing machine were the cleaning rags from the lady, the, the, from the cleaning lady's stuff the day before. She finished cleaning. She put the cleaning rags in the washing machine, but she didn't turn it on because it's not a full load, right? Mm-hmm. So he takes out cleaning rags to wash his clothes separately from the, I don't know. That to me is very odd. But mm-hmm. anyway, so he does that. He does the pizza. He takes a shower, you know, all of these things. It's 45 minutes later minimum because he said he got home at 430 um, and when he calls um, Lacey's parents' house looking for Lacey. Now, you have an eight-month pregnant woman. Her car is in the driveway. The dog is in the backyard with the leash on. Her sister has tried to call you earlier in the day, and you did not call her back. How do you know she didn't go into labor? Mm-hmm. But she's not home. Her car's not there, so maybe somebody picked her up because she went into labor. Do you not think, oh, I better call right away. Where the hell is she? Yeah. No, you wait 45 minutes, take a shower, eat pizza, and then call. And he calls and, and talks to Sharon Rocha, Lacey's mother, tells her. And what does, what does he tell her, Yolanda? Uh, Lacey's missing. Lacey is missing. He doesn't say, hey, I got home and Lacey's gone. Is she with you guys or is she okay? I don't know where she is. He says she's missing. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this in other cases. I can't remember exactly which one's now, but we, when we hear that, we're like, hmm, that's a little... That's a strange way to phrase things right away. He has a strange way of a lot of things, he says. Yeah, he does. Well, he, apparently at that point, he starts knocking on doors in his neighborhood to see if anybody has seen Lacey. I believe her mother says she's going to go to the park because that would be the place she would have went to walk the dog and maybe something happened to her there. So she's going to go there. It's already starting to get dark because remember, this is the winter it's already you know, getting close to 6 p.m. And um, they're frantic. They're this frantic, is, yes. Her mother and frantic. they are. Because at 5.45, not even an hour later, Ron Gransky, which is Lacey's stepfather, calls 911 to report her missing. Tell, mm-hmm. And right away it says she's eight months pregnant. She hasn't been seen since this morning. She went to walk the dog and she's gone and the dog's home. So that's the beginning of you know, the Lacey disappearance. When the police come to question Scott, he gives them the story about, the, about fishing. This is maybe the first unraveling of his story because he just very um, inconveniently gets a cop who is also a fisherman and knows a lot about fishing, a very avid fisherman, and he starts asking him questions. Again, because, and, and the detective will talk about this in the documentary where he'll say the person that's closest to the missing woman is the one that we are going to check out first. 
He was the husband. He was the last one to see her. So we want to check out his story. That's what we do. He asked Scott, what was, what was he fishing for? What kind of fish? What kind of bait did he use? What kind of pole did he use? Instead of answering, Scott just stares at him. Mm-hmm. Just a blank stare on his face. Now, I can see being a blank stare when you hear your wife is gone and nobody knows where she is, but that didn't happen. It happened when he's asked about what he was actually doing that day. Mm-hmm. So later on, Ron Gransky, like I said, his, his father-in-law, who is also an avid fisherman, will also ask him questions about fishing that day. And specifically, he'll say, what kind of fishing was he doing that late in the day? Yeah. Because I don't know, I'm not a fisherman, but I know people that like to fish and they go out very early. It's kind of like golfers. They go early, yeah. right? Or at least when they get a tea time early, they'll go early. Scott also doesn't answer him. No answer one, at all. Nothing. The one thing he remembers about when it was like a light bulb clicked, and that's what the cops said, because he specifically asked him, what kind of fish were you trolling for? What kind of lure were you using? Mm-hmm. Because he was just trying to prompt him to, to get an answer. Right. When he got to the lure, he said, you know, like you said, stared at him blankly. And then all of a sudden, a few minutes later, it was like a light bulb went off and he went, I remember it was silver. <laughs> <laughs> That's very sp- But the, he can't remember the lure in any mm-hmm. way at all. But he can remember what kind of cereal she was eating that morning. Yeah. What Martha Frankly. Stewart was making. Like, does this not add up? This is very odd. Mm-hmm. Very, very odd. So because, again, he was not expecting that question. He was not at all. He was thinking, oh, that sounds plausible. Just go with that, you know, until he had to get specific about it. But the other thing, too, is he will tell three other people that he was golfing that day, not fishing. Yep. So he keeps jumping around. Okay. And he did that right after um, they all assembled and were trying to look for her. Mm -hmm. So that was very early on that he said that. Yeah. So at 9 p.m., the de- Detective Rokini arrives at Peterson's home, and he's going to be Peterson's nemesis. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Peterson's going to talk a lot about uh, Rokini later on about, you know, he just doesn't like this guy, of course, because this guy's like a dog with a bone, man. He's like, he's all over this right away. So what I wanted to do is go, there's a whole list of things. The reason that the, the police initially were suspicious and also later on were even more suspicious of... Scott. So I'm just going to go through the list just because, because one of the things the A&E specialty was basically there was that whole kind of idea of rush to judgment. They really didn't have anything. They just, he was the, the husband. And of course, later on when they, you know, Amber Fry comes into play and find out he had a, an affair that that was it. Now there's a whole bunch of other things though. So let's just go ahead and list them out. When he, first of all, when he called Sharon and says that Lacey is missing was something that they noted the, we talked about this, the wet mop and bucket that looks to have recently been used to clean up mm-hmm. and was seen leaning by the back door of the house. Again, Scott had said Lacey was mopping when he left that morning. No traces of blood was found on the mop or floor. This is a question I want to ask you, Yolanda. What do you think he was mopping? I don't know. That, the whole thing about, and you'll come to that later, I'm sure, but the cement mm-hmm. particles, that seemed to be a big deal. Yeah. And it was found everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if that was um, something he was trying to clean up. Yeah. The other, only other thing that I thought 
it just kind of popped into my mind as I was going through all of these things is, okay, if there's, if it's not blood, did they, I mean, I don't even know if you could test for this or even thought about this. She's a pregnant woman. Okay. And if he did something like try to strangle her, I think she would urinate. That's true. So I thought, what about urine? You know, that's true. Never thought about that. Mm -hmm. That's true. There was something he was mopping up. Um, and I don't even know if they would think of that or think that that's, I don't even know if you can test. I assume, I don't know, but okay. So the other things, here's some other things, Th- uh, the throw rug near the back door that was bunched up and mm-hmm. the detective said it looked as if something heavy was dragged over it. Scott says the dog or the cat may have caused that to happen. The phone book, like you said, out to, to a listing for a criminal defense attorney, wet rags on top of the washing machine that had sand and dirt and suspected they thought it was blood at first. Um, Scott's recently washed clothes from that day was in the washing machine. There was an indentation on the bed the ma- in the master bedroom, which was Scott and, and Lacey's bedroom, of course, that was suspected or looked like to be the size of a body in a prone position laying across the bed. There was an indentation. You can find those pictures online yeah. and it's kind of creepy. It's very creepy. If he had said that he came home and he laid on the bed real quick, but he, but he never did that. He never said that. No. Again, it's one of those little details that people don't. But detectives, see, they see things like that because they're mm-hmm. trained to, right? It when, literally looked like you would lay a body across the bed mm-hmm. and not, not the lengthwise of the bed, but across the bed. Right. So when detectives first were searching the house and the cars um, when they first arrived, Scott was worried about detectives causing a door ding in the Land Rover when they went to search his truck. So this is a man who just, you know, his wife is missing. They should be very frantic. He should be very focused on how do we find her. And they went to go look in his truck. And as they opened the door, it was parked next to the other car. He was parked next to his wife's Land Rover. And as the detective opened the door, he was afraid that the door was going to hit the Land Rover and cause a door ding. So he came running over with a glove mm-hmm. and wanted to put a glove in between so that make sure not to get a door ding on the Land Rover, which is, they thought was very, very odd um, that that was what he was worried about in that moment. Um, later, when the detectives were sitting with Scott at the dining room table, he asked them to put something under the paper he's ri- where the detective was writing notes right. um, because he didn't want the table to be marred. Again, this is, <laughs> he, these little things he's focused on and not on this terrible thing that's happening at that moment, yeah. which is very, very, they thought that was very, so these little, all of these things start to add up to the detective and saying, there's something off here. As detectives were conducting search that night, Lacey's mother comes and uh, Scott remarks to her that he wouldn't be surprised if the detectives found blood, especially in his truck, as he often cut himself. He made this statement to others later as well. Later, he tells detectives he cuts his hands every day especially in his truck when he reaches into the door side pocket. That's a okay, OJ. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what I thought. Like, oh my God, he's pulling an OJ. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, uh, very odd thing to say. He's standing outside. His mother-in-law's frantic. You know, her daughter's missing. And he's saying, I wouldn't be surprised if they find blood. I'm like, really? That is mm-hmm. not a smart thing to do. Um, and then we talk about the concrete debris found in, in his work warehouse and in his boat was something, and that will come into play. We'll go into that. During his interview the first night, Amy Rocha calls Scott on the cell phone to tell him who has gathered at the house to help search. Again, detectives are seeing all this. 
The detectives observe that he doesn't ask her for any updates or details about the search. Okay, so he's at the police station with the detective at this point being, you know, questioned about the details of that day. And he gets a phone call from Lacey's sister and says, oh, so-and-so's here to help and -and so-and-so showed up and da-da-da, you know. And he's like, okay, great, thanks. Doesn't say, oh, nothing. Like, what are they doing? Uh, are they searching the park? Are they searching the, you know, whatever? Nothing. He'd ask nothing about it, which they thought was very odd. He also, you can you can look at that interview. It's all over YouTube because um, it was videotaped while he was there. He's very unemotional. He's very relaxed during the interview with the police at the station. And remember, she's just been missing, as far as they know, for a few hours. He's even leaning back in his chair. He's got his hands in his pockets. I mean, just in a very relaxed position. And I can't imagine... Having that demeanor when this is just happening, right? And it's not just your wife. It's your son. Yeah. Yeah. Your unborn son. Yeah. That's due anytime. And And most men, even when it's, you know, a baby in general, but when it's a son, Mm -hmm. come on, let's, let's be honest. Men are going to be, you know, oh, my boy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's your first child and it's a boy. And, you know, that that should be a very, a very big deal. And you should be very emotional about that. So nothing. This is where, this is where Brokini says that, okay, this, at this point, I'm like, there's something way off with this dude. Oh, and then he only asked one question during that interview because he said, did you have any questions? Because he hadn't asked any questions. And he asks whether the police can give him numbers or resources for counselors for him or the family. And what he means by that is grief counselors. Mm-hmm. This was even before they, they know anything. Yeah. He's, he's already anticipating they're going to need grief counseling. That is insane. So... During the days after the disappearance, Scott keeps a low profile. This was a big deal because um, the rest of the family is out in front of the public, on the news, um, in front of cameras to ask for help in the search. But he always remains in the background. Well, you know why. Yeah. Well, we know why. Because he's got a girlfriend Mm -hmm. and he's not married. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. yeah. So they start, they open a search center at a a local hotel in town. They have pictures up of Lacey there and they have pictures of Scott and Lacey together. He takes down the pictures that he's in. And whenever he's asked about why he's not out there with the family, he says, oh, because um, I just want to keep the investigation focused on Lacey. What does that have to do with anything? Uh, Yeah. And he says that, he says that in interviews even. He says that all the way through. That it had to be focused on Lacey. It had to be focused on Lacey, and he that's why he's not front and center, which we oh. of course we know later on exactly why he's not. One one thing, let's step back for a second. Mm-hmm. One thing um that the police did find, uh, we forgot to mention, was uh that he had a loaded gun in the glove compartment of his car or right. his truck. Yep. Yeah, he did. And then he didn't have a good excuse for it either. Like No, he didn't. He his uh he said that he had taken a trip with his father to Lone Mountain and that the gun was in there because he was going to use it to shoot at pheasants on that trip. And the cops said, well, that's not normally the type of gun that you was. It was a handgun. Mm-hmm. And he said, that, that's not the kind of gun you normally use for that. And he goes, oh, no, 
Like he said, but you know, we didn't use it because, um, the gun wouldn't fire. And so the, the police actually took the gun without telling him Mm. they took it while they were searching the truck before he went to be interrogated at the police station. They, because they had already asked him if they could search the property. And so, because they found that they were they, I guess they were in their right to go ahead and take it without telling him mm-hmm. that when they took the gun, they eventually did ballistics testing on it and it fired perfectly fine every time. And on top of that, they had had a discussion with his father later on about this gun. And he said, well, I don't remember him bringing that gun on that trip, but I do know that we did, you know, we do shoot, uh, but we were using shotguns. You know, none of that made any sense. So just now, another thing he's lying about. Well, I kind of thought about it, and I thought, you know, I wonder if some part of him, while he, he had that loaded gun in there, while he was moving her body, if he had to use it. Or, you know, someone mm-hmm. saw something they shouldn't have. Oh, I see what you're saying. So if there was any witnesses for some mm-hmm. reason. Yeah, that he well, had, what was he he had a do? recourse. Right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting. And that, that was the only other reason I could think that he would have that in there. Okay, so your wife's missing, and this investigation is going on about it. Scott never calls the police for updates. He seems uninterested in the investigation. He also won't agree to a polygraph test when requested. And during this time, you know, her family, her mother, her father, her siblings, everybody is doing everything they can, and he is just, he's basically MIA. He's not, they said he's just not interested. He's not mm-hmm. trying. You know, of course, we know why he's not interested, because he already knows what happened. But you would think you at least try to act. Yeah. <laughs> like well, you're interested. That might be a good, good strategy. There were two things that he did call the police about. One was that gun. And he, when he noticed it was missing, which was apparently right after he left the police station. Oh, right. Yeah. So why was he looking for that? Mm-hmm. And two, 24 hours after she went missing, he asked the detective if they were using cadaver dogs. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and they told him, they said, well, um, this is still a missing person investigation. Right. Not a murder investigation. Yeah. So. I mean, he is so inappropriate at all times. <laughs> that, I like, mean, that is like the nicest thing I could say about him. He's so inappropriate. Let's, let's, give, let's give a grieving husband the manual what not to say. Oh, and gosh. Yeah. That's what he used. Oh, also a couple other things that they found suspicious and they, that they found that he had taken out a $250,000 life insurance policy on Lacey. They also noted that there were 11 other fishing areas between 9 and 60 miles of Modesto that he could have gone to. Remember, he's leaving on Christmas Eve to go fishing. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing, too, about the fishing that I just wanted to bring up. He drives like an hour and a half to go fishing on the bay for an hour and a half mm-hmm. and then drives home. An hour and a half. So he's driving for three hours to fish for an hour and a half in the middle of the day. And the other thing, too, he says is that he drove in, he got his gear, went into the boat, gets out on the boat, realized he forgot the lures that he needed in the truck. So he really couldn't even fish because what he was going there to do, he forgot to take that thing out of the truck. 
to go fishing with. So it, it really makes no sense at all. It was a very flimsy alibi. And I don't know why he would pick that as the alibi. I mean, he could have done anything else. Could have said, work called me away. He had to find a way to get rid of a body. If he just wanted to, like he's told the police, he just wanted to put this boat on the water somewhere, mm-hmm. right? There were plenty of other lakes. Yes. Closer. Super close. There's a lot of lakes around there. Yeah. So I pulled up the map mm-hmm. and something just hit me. So you said they belong to golf club. Golf club. Yeah, the country club that his country club. Yeah, was it the Creekside? I'm not sure of the name of it, but I know it was it was local. It was in Modesto, right? Yeah. So, in looking at the map, there is a golf course right near East La Loma Park. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where she was walking the dog. So it would make sense that if you said you were golfing and you were at this Creekside golf course or whatever, mm-hmm. even if he had made an appearance there, that that would have been too close mm-hmm. to where she could have gone missing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that wouldn't have given him a good alibi either. Right. That's I could true. see kind of why he wouldn't, he would have changed his mind about using that. I want to go to the theories that the, the, the program put out um, really quickly, because I think we've already kind of debunked most of them. And there may be a couple of details that we need to bring up. So the first one Okay, because here's, here's the thing. What we know is that, you know, s- several months later, the bodies wash up in the area where he said he was, within a mile of the area where he said he was, which was at the Berkeley Marina. One of the first things that they say is, because they have to, they have to somehow figure out, how do we defend that? How do we defend that where he said he was on that day, this is where the bodies are discovered, not far from there, that come in from the bay. So what are they going to say? They said that Scott was framed, that whoever took Lacey then had to get rid of her. They knew that his alibi was that he is on the bay that day. So they took her body to the bay and dumped it there to frame him. Mm-hmm. Who's going to do this? Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot of, that's a lot of risk. Number one. Well, not only that, how do you get it right? It's not a small area. No, it's ludicrous. But who are these people that are framing Scott? And first of all, why, why frame him? Why? Revenge for what? What did he do? How do you know him? What do you, why do you care? It, it doesn't make any sense. Okay, so here's some of the people they said probably could have done it or probably did it. Lacey's murders were the burglars across the street. The three Hispanic men? Yeah, or the two older white men, whoever they are. They're changelings, so they're both. Um, or homeless or transient people that live in the area. Or because maybe they have the transportation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or, of course, we've always got to go with the classic satanic cult. <laughs> okay. We've got to go with the classics. So we got to throw the satanic cult in there. And this pro- uh, the A&E program depicts Modesto as crime-ridden and a violent place to live. They even have a, um, a saying. They call it murder, meth, and auto theft. That's what they call Modesto. Now, what do you know about Modesto? It's like any other city. It's got a bad side. It's got a good side. Right. Modesto is, you know, it's one of the, it's a sleepier town. Um, It's not a big metropolis, but it's not a tiny village. It's, you know, an average sized town. Yeah. Um, Where Scott and Lacey lived, you can look at where they lived and they're middle class homes, nice neighborhood, nice clean neighborhood, 
just nice middle class neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and her her parents lived a, just a few blocks away, right? Yeah, it they wasn't lived, that far. No, it wasn't far. To be fair, up the road, there was a place, an area they call the airport neighborhood. There are more kind of, you know, ramshackle homes, some lower, you know, you could tell it's kind of a lower socioeconomic neighborhood. Um, And they said that's where a lot of the crime is and it's not too far away. So that's what they're saying. It could have been somebody wandered into this neighborhood. We're doing something. And but here's the thing. If you have that kind of crime, they're going to rob you. They're going to rob you, they may kill you, and then they're going to leave. They're mm-hmm. not going to take your body. They're not going to drive to the bay. They're not going to get in a boat yeah. and dump you overboard. That's not going to happen. So to me, that whole thing sounds, I mean, I would just totally dismiss that if I was a jury member. So what they say, how does this happen? They said, scenario number one, Lacey sees burglars across the street and she confronts them and they abduct and kill her because that's what burglars do. They murder people. <laughs> they don't. They get the hell out of there because that the whole thing is getting in and getting out without being seen. And do you see Lacey at eight months pregnant going and confronting burglars like multiple men? Oh, oh yeah, that's what they were trying to they, they depicted that on there. Yeah, they did over and over. And I'm like, if anything, she might get on her cell phone and call 911. Scenario number two is that Lacey was walking the dog and a transient abducts her and kills her. Okay, then her body would have been in the park. Mm-hmm. End of story. That's it. Scenario number three, Lacey is being watched by a satanic cult who planned to abduct her for her baby. Uh, I don't know. They didn't really specify why, but in their minds, always satanic cult's going to have... I don't know what that's... I tell you, I don't know what that that's about. It makes no sense. To, it's never made any sense to me. Like sacrificing people, sacrificing people. I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. They also, but here's something that was investigated and something that did come up in the A-anything that I thought was interesting, but not really evidence of anything. They also investigated the report. Oh, here's the thing I wanted to say. The Vanessa police actually investigated all of these theories. They did investigate the satanic cult theory, the transient thing. They went and they did all of these things. It wasn't like they just okay, yeah, we don't care. We already got our man. No, they did investigate all of these things. Um, they also re- investigated this report. There was a pregnant, another pregnant Modesto woman. Her name was Lourdes Avila. She owned a clothing store. It was kind of up the, the road from where Lacey's lived. She was in her clothing store. This is where she sold clothes. And she was, at, I guess, in the front of the store kind of doing some things. And there was a car across the street with some men in it that kept watching her, she said. She was very pregnant this time, too. She said she felt very threatened because these men kept looking. She was like, are they casing the store? You know, what are they, are they going to rob me? She was, you know, a little worried about that. She goes back in the store, and one of the men, I think at least one of the men, goes into the store. As she sees him coming in, she goes to the back of the store, and she gets on her cell phone, and she starts calling the police. And the man leaves. So the defense tried to say that these were the people that possibly abducted Lacey. They were looking for a pregnant woman and they couldn't get Lourdes. So they got Lacey. And this is part of that, you know, again, throwing this in here and see what sticks. Okay. They're going, she has a store. They know she's Mm -hmm. got money in there. Yeah. You know, 
it's like, and she's defenseless and she, because she, she's big and pregnant. Yeah. And they're probably watching her the same thinking is anybody else in the store? Is there a man in there? Is it just her? Mm-hmm. So they're watching this, but then when she calls the police and she's on 911 and they probably, you know, hear, hear that they take off. Right. Also the defense did not introduce this information into evidence for the trial at all. So that tells you something as well that they probably didn't have enough to go on. The other thing that the, uh, that the program brought up over and over was the whole Lacey walking her dog through the park. They had people, the sightings, they did a map that it showed that she was making a loop all the way around the park and back to her house, 45 minutes of walking around the park, according to all these witnesses who saw it at various places. And she have a wheelchair with her when this exactly, first of all, 45 minutes really. And from what I hear, it's kind of hilly when you first go into the park, it's, you know, it's kind of strenuous to, to walk mm-hmm. that trail. Not um, to mention, let's mention, how big was her dog? Yeah, he was a big dog. Yeah, yeah he was a golden, golden retriever, retriever mm-hmm. mix. Yeah, so I would say, what, 40, 50 pounds? But here's the fact. Prosecutions, the prosecution called several witnesses to the stand who identified women that were not Lacey who, who were walking in the park that day. Many of them had dogs with them. Some of them had dark hair like Lacey to show that these eyewitnesses were mistaken and who they thought they saw. Again, like we talked about the power of suggestion, and probably just misremembered this at a different time or seeing somebody else. That was, I felt, that was really debunked. As a matter of fact, this is something in the appeal that they're going to throw out. So again, going through all the evidence, prosecutors narrowed the time that Lacey would have had to leave for her walk, as reported by Scott, to 10.08 to 10.18. And like we said, in that short time, she would have had to change clothes, put on shoes and socks. Scott described what she was wearing, which was different from what she was found, what was found on the body when discovered. He also said she was barefoot when he left. She would have also had to leash, leash the dog, leave her a walk, and return by 1018, which was the time that the neighbor saw the dog. Like we said, that's, that timeline is just implausible. There's it's mm-hmm. no way. The biggest claim that I thought, and I just want to go over this really briefly, is that, and this, this is ad nauseum in this, in this program, is that Scott was tried in the media. Okay, Nancy Grace was saying he was guilty and da-da-da-da-da. And, of course, it, it became huge after Amber Fry came out and said that she was, had, had an affair with Scott. And they said, oh, it was tried in the media, and that's why people found him guilty, and they could, he couldn't get a fair jury and all of this and that. But Scott himself agreed to interviews mm-hmm. over and over. Diane Sawyer, local news anchors, other people, over and over. And he did not do himself any favors. Is he looked emotionless. He looked like he was rehearsed in the things he said. He did not come across as genuine. He did not come across as grieving, and nobody bought it. And that really put a nail in the coffin there. But the other thing, too, is if it's... Yes, there was a lot of media attention on this, but why couldn't the defense have used that media attention in his favor? Mm -hmm. Like they said, wait a minute, let's talk to all these people that say, you know, he's a great guy, he was a good husband, even the family said he was a good husband. They could have, they could have done that. Why didn't they? I think because they couldn't put Scott out there mm-hmm. because he didn't come across as genuine. I read the, the book um, by his half-sister mm-hmm. who believes he's guilty. She made mention, uh, talking about the media thing, she made mention of uh, Scott Peterson's mom calling her, who's they share a mother, and telling her, oh, I just talked to Diane Sawyer. So even his own mother was excited about the prospect of talking to the media. I know we're leaving things out here and there, but oh my gosh, there's so much in this case. There is so, yeah, there is so much. 
And there is so much more to this story and this discussion that I'm going to end this first part here. But don't worry, part two will be released tomorrow, true crime garage style. So as my holiday gift to you for the very first time ever, you will get two episodes in one week. You're welcome. And what's in store for part two? Well, you won't want to miss it because we will finish debunking the assertions that the A&E program laid out against Scott Peterson's guilty verdict, and we'll go through the rest of the events of the case, including the investigation, discovery of the bodies, arrest, and trial. We'll conclude by giving our theories as to why we believe Scott Peterson is guilty in the murder of Lacey Peterson, including, as you're used to, going into the background and psychology of Scott Peterson that I believe led up to his actions that culminated in murder. Before we end, I want to play a few more holiday greetings from some great podcasters. Be good to one another, and I'll be talking at you again tomorrow. Hi, this is Jerry Williams, host of FBI Retired Case File Review. You know, that other true crime podcast. I just wanted to say happy holidays and to warn you, Don't go too crazy with the celebrating. We certainly don't want you to become the subject of one of our future episodes. This is your friend, Mixter Hyde, a.k.a. JV, from the In The Mix podcast, as well as the Criminal Musings podcast. And shortly, the Red Wing audio drama. Definitely check that out. Happy holidays, you guys. Stay safe and have fun. And stay strange. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish, or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.